Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with reaction to the sudden cancellation of the Quad meeting in Australia and President Biden's planned visit to that country, along with the cancellation of the first trip by an American president to Papua New Guinea. This is happening because of the threat from far-right radicals on the House Freedom Caucus who hold sway over Speaker McCarthy, who are prepared to default and do untold damage to our economy, which has forced Biden to return earlier to Washington on Sunday in the hope of closing a deal with these legislative terrorists. Joining us to discuss concerns expressed by senior U.S. diplomats that our domestic turmoil makes us an unreliable partner on the world stage is Cleo Pascal, a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, focusing on the Indo-Pacific region and the strategic implications of the intersection of geopolitical, geoeconomic, and geophysical change. She has briefed government departments of the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union, India, and many others, and she's the author of Global Warring, How Environmental, Economic, and Political Crises Will Redraw the World Map. And yesterday she testified before Congress on Chinese influence operations in the Pacific Islands. Then we'll look into explosive recorded evidence and 23,000 private emails threatening to expose Rudy Giuliani's recent political dealings with Trump and his family, including the possibility of selling pardons for $2 million a head to be split between Trump and Giuliani. This surfacing in a $10 million lawsuit from a woman who is suing America's mayor and accusing him of rape. We'll look into how much Rudy helped get Trump elected and whether the former president will throw his longtime friend and personal lawyer under the bus. Joining us is Lloyd Green, an attorney based in New York who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Department of Justice and is a contributing writer at The Guardian. We will discuss his latest article at The Guardian, The Fall of Rudy Giuliani, Once the Toast of New York Continues Unabated. Then finally we'll assess the promises and pitfalls of AI, which was the subject of Tuesday's hearing before the Senate Subcommittee on Privacy, Technology and Law, at which Senators heard testimony from Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, whose chatbot ChatGPT is in wide use. Joining us to explore what regulation of this potentially dangerous and fast-moving technology is possible or practical is Jessica Malugan, Director of the Center for Technology and Innovation at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, whose research focuses on technology issues including antitrust, online privacy, internet taxation, telecommunications, social media content, and net neutrality regulation. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising, as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Cleo Pascal, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, focusing on the Indo-Pacific region and the strategic implications of the intersection of geopolitical, geoeconomic, and geophysical change. She has briefed government departments in the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union, India, and many other countries. And she's the author of Global Warring, How Environmental, Economic, and Political Crises Will Redraw the World Map. And she testified before Congress yesterday on Chinese influence operations in the Pacific Islands. Welcome to Background Briefing, Cleo Pascal. A great pleasure. Good, good to be talking to you again. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And just to touch on global warring in terms of global warming, 
We just learned today from the World Meteorological Organization that we are unlikely to stay below the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold of global warming before 2027. Uh, yeah, it, uh, I mean, it's very things are are so unpredictable these days that uh, that seems to be the case. If uh, you know, if there isn't you know something more cheerful like nuclear war or something like that, I mean, it's it's really not. Uh, um, a predictable or linear time at all. But uh, if it is linear, then uh, that's that's definitely uh, not on track to being uh, to being contained. But it will impact uh, the Pacific Islands more than anything, right? They already have sea levels rising. Yes, and uh, and I mean, as you know, it's a it's a complex dynamic. So uh, before this sea level rise uh, makes an island uninhabitable. Uh, you can get saltwater intrusion into the freshwater aquifer, which can affect uh, drinking water. That, for example, is a is a serious problem in Tuvalu right now. Um, that can be uh, mitigated through uh, desalination, but of course, that's dependent on energy costs and availability of resources for that. But if you get that uh, saltwater intrusion into the aquifer, uh, your plant life can die off, which uh, increases the rate of erosion. So um, you, you have these kind of complex feedback systems that can uh, change the physical environment very rapidly. That's why kind of linear, linear projections can both underestimate or overestimate a problem in a specific area. You really need to go there and speak to the people who live there to understand uh, what's affecting their physical environment and if, what can be mitigated and how. Well, Biden's trip to the G7 in Japan on the agenda of all of the G7 nations and those that were invited, along with Pacific Island delegates and uh, Australia and others, the main agenda is to combat climate change and to tackle global inflation and also bolster support for Ukraine. But And there's also the other issue, which is to counter China's growing influence in the world and particularly in the Indo-Pacific so many people are looking upon the cancellation of the trip to uh, Papua New Guinea and Australia, and more importantly, the cancellation of the Quad meeting, even though they're apparently going to co- try and cobble something together, as a, a real blow and a victory for China. How do you see it? Yeah, I, I mean, I obviously don't think it was intentional on the on the part of the administration, um, but um, the it, the effect on the ground is, uh, yeah, this is uh, a win for China. I mean, they, it, it has multiple political warfare methodologies for uh, spinning this. Uh, you know, the U.S. isn't a reliable partner. The U.S. is, uh, you know, democracy is chaotic and doesn't work, which is one of their, one of their main uh, hobby horses. Um, they, the U.S. doesn't care, all that sort of stuff. So there's, in the, in the information warfare realm, um, this is a, a Bonanza, a buffet of choices for a PRC political warfare machine, um, but even more so on the ground. Uh, you know, there there are a lot of agreements that were on the cusp of uh, of being agreed uh, for some very sensitive discussions that I think were probably going to be had on the on the sidelines of the quad. So a lot of that may continue uh, track 1.5 type of thing. Um, but a big space had been made for the presidential visit, both in PNG in Australia. Uh, other things had been cancelled, moved aside uh, to create the space for, you know, what is a, a bit of a security zoo when a president moves from place to place. And now it's being cancelled at such short notice that vacuum, that hole can't be filled with other equally productive uh, things. So it certainly... Uh, it, it has that political warfare, information warfare, win for China, but it also has practical implications for uh, what can be agreed um, and how quickly some of those other uh, on-the-ground relationships can develop. Well, a former U.S. Uh, Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs, Daniel Russell, is quoted in The Guardian saying, it will be seen, this is talking about the cancellation of of the quad and uh, of the trip to PNG in Australia by Biden, it will be seen in the region as a self-inflicted wound caused by political polarization in Washington and does not reflect well on America's reliability as a partner. And a veteran uh, diplomat 
uh, Aaron David Miller, who served, I think, about six or seven U.S. presidents, said, I've rarely seen a foreign policy right now more tethered to domestic political constraints than we have now on Iran and on China and even Ukraine to an extent. Biden would say the greatest threat the public faces is not Xi or Putin, it's from us. We've seen the enemy and it's us. We have to repair ourselves. We've seen a self-inflicted wound to the United Kingdom by Brexit. I mean, they literally, probably one of the greatest self-inflicted political wounds in history. But the United States, of course, is poised another huge self-inflicted wound in terms of defaulting on the debt. And that's why Biden has to come back in order to stop that. But do you see a high political or diplomatic cost here to the United States? Yeah, I, you know, one would think that the United States could walk and chew gum at the same time, uh, you know, deal with this domestic uh, political issues and at the same time uh, pursue um, the, the sort of activities and engagements that are necessary to keep the free and open Indo-Pacific that all of the partners in the region are, are so concerned about. Um, so, you know, that it's it's concerning. It's not so much the political division which is obviously a problem that's concerning. It, it's the bureaucratic or administrative mismanagement that's a bit more concerning. I mean, you know, they, they knew what deadlines were coming up and they knew what activities were happening in the region. And uh, it looks just an, an awful lot like mismanagement, you know, as opposed to uh, kind of political vitriol or, or, or things like that. And you, and you can see it at a small level. Uh, for example, the, the United States uh, just last week, uh, opened up um, an embassy in the Kingdom of Tonga, for, which is a, a Pacific Island country that's been a very strong ally of the United States for, for a long time. They, I think the first agreement with the U.S. was in 1883 or something like that. And the U.S. You know, has opened an embassy there. Um, you'd think that would be a, a win, a diplomatic win. But unfortunately, it was opened at a time when the king and the prime minister were out of the country for the coronation. It was opened in a in a very low key way. A lot of the key leaders, including, for example, the Speaker of Parliament, wasn't told that it was happening. Um, and it, it's sort of a, a, a self-inflicted uh, bureaucratic uh, uh, wound. I mean, I, I understand that it was done that way because it was an administrative opening, really not a full opening, but people on the ground don't really know that. Um, so it's it's a case where, as in many other cases, there, there's a desire to have closer relations with the U.S. and the U.S. wants to engage. You can They are opening an embassy, but it's just that the, the delivery uh, mutes and mutes the message and leaves it uh, open to distortion from malign influence. Well, the Australian Prime Minister, I mean, we'll talk about PNG in a moment, but the Australian Prime Minister is clearly caught off guard because on Tuesday he issued a statement saying, I am pleased that President Biden is able to take up my invitation to address Parliament. This is Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. And he also declared that the Quad Summit would be the largest, most significant gathering in Australia since we hosted the G20 a decade ago. And Marine One had already arrived in Canberra, the capital, so that's more than embarrassing, is it not? Yeah, it's it's not ideal. And, you know, if a cancellation does have to happen and people, you know, especially world leaders understand it, then, you know, you you would think that it would that it would have been better if, you know, President Biden would have come out and made a statement about it, expressed regret, expressed importance of the relationship to the U.S., um, you know, but understanding that that the U.S., people come first or however you want to put it, then, you know, you need to deal with these domestic issues, but at least not because the information, as you know, was, I mean, it's confusing. It was, it was slipping out in bits and pieces. I was, I'm sure you were as well, you know, getting texts, you know, he's not going to PNGs. He's still going to the quad. What's happening at the quad is the quad being canceled. There were, there was a lot of uh, confusion, which doesn't uh, aid in, uh, in reinforcing a perception that, that the U S is, um, you know, uh, focused and uh, competent uh, in this, in the diplomatic, this sort of diplomatic engagement. So it, a, a lot of it could have been managed through just better communication, clear communication with countries that are friends. These, I mean, these are, these are allies and, and they'll understand and they'll try to make it easier on everybody if they're, they're given 
the chance to be part of the process. So let's talk about the reaction to the cancellation of President Biden's uh, visit to Papua New Guinea. And of course, uh, Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, visited uh, Papua New Guinea in 2018. He spent several days there on a state visit and he attended the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit there. I take it that uh, a lot of preparation had gone into this first visit by an American president to Papua New Guinea and they're obviously deeply disappointed. Well, it's yes, and it's actually even it's it's more uh, a bigger issue than that because um, since uh, 2014 2015, India has said that it was uh, interested in engaging more with the Pacific Islands, and they're actually the Quad member that it, that can deliver the most on the ground for the people of the Pacific. They have similar uh, economies, village-based economies, um, similar climates in many parts of India. Uh, similar concerns over um, kind of basic access to healthcare, education, affordable energy, uh, telecoms, that sort of thing. And they've pioneered work in a lot of those sectors that is affordable and reliable. So uh, more Indian engagement with the Pacific Islands could help bolster the societies at a, at a ground level that creates the kind of human security that, especially in the times of environmental change and, and um, other crises like we saw with COVID, uh, could could really help. And uh, apart from helping the people, it also forestalls uh, the entry of China into those sectors who comes in with similarly low cost, but perhaps less reliable products. But they also come uh, tagged along with uh, strategic engagement that can be very detrimental to local democracy. Um, so India had decided um, to have this the Prime Minister Modi go to Papua New Guinea, and then they set up a, essentially a secretariat in, in Port Moresby in the capital to bring in Pacific Island leaders uh, from across the region so that it wasn't just a bilateral between PNG and India, but it was between all the Pacific Islands and India. Um, there's also supposed to be a major uh, business delegation that accompanied it. It was uh, maybe a two, three-day trip, something like that. It wasn't quite defined. But at one point, um, it, it was going to be quite transformational for the region. And then the U.S. announced that President Biden would be coming right in the middle of that event um, to meet with those leaders that uh, India had organized to come and visit and paid for to come to, to PNG. And that uh, kind of completely threw uh, the, the Indian planning into disarray. Uh, the uh, business delegation was cut was cut was made smaller, I've understood. Uh, the, the trip was cut short. Modi's visit was cut short substantially. Uh, and he was going to leave before Biden and that whole security entourage that comes with the American president comes in. And so um, the announcement of President Biden going affected greatly this uh, organization by India uh, which will continue. President uh, Prime Minister Modi will still go, but the enlarged uh, delegation and engagement has now been uh, can't be can't be reestablished. Uh, so it sabotaged essentially inadvertently anyway uh, what India was trying to do, and now he's not even showing up. So it doesn't look good for PNG. It doesn't look good to the Pacific Island leaders, and it it was not very helpful for uh, you know U.S. India relations either. But at the end of the day, when you go back to the reasons for why Biden had to cut this trip short is because of this debt ceiling standoff. It's a completely bogus issue. No, no other country except for, for uh, Denmark even has this debt ceiling limit. And it's being used as a form of extortion. The former Speaker of the House, John Boehner, who uh, had the same problem back in 2011, referred to the radicals uh, insisting on threatening to default on the U.S. debt, referred to them as legislative terrorists. So the fact that's even happening in the first place, that, that Biden's even negotiating with these crazy people, is just, I find it deeply embarrassing, and I wonder why it even got to this issue. But the bottom line is that the results here with the cancellation of these important visits certainly bolster the argument that our domestic turmoil here in the United States makes us an unreliable partner on the global stage. Um, that seems to be pretty evident, is it not? Uh, that's how it's being presented 
I mean, all, all I can say is that, you know, and I, I'm not, this isn't to, I've seen other administrations that have had severe domestic problems and continued with a coherent, competent foreign policy at the same time. So I, I don't know, you know, what's unique. This, you know, this is a, I, I, I don't, I'm not an expert on this debt thing. As you, as you know, I'm a Canadian, eh? Uh, so it kind of all perplexes me. But I do know that other administrations have had all sorts of incredibly severe things going on domestically and still managed to uh, work with their allies. So I don't, I don't know what's different about this. I mean, do you, what do you think? What, why is it different this time? Why can't, why can't this administration walk and chew gum? I don't know. I don't know how why it even got into this situation where these uh, this small group of terrorists in the uh, so-called Freedom Caucus in the House who seem to be able to control the Speaker have been given so much power and influence that they could threaten the full faith and credit of the United States economy and tank our domestic economy, the, hurt the global economy, and you know undermine the primacy of the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. So <laughs> the only thing I can say, uh, Cleo, is we've seen a country go mad before with the British, their self-inflicted wound with Brexit. So maybe Biden can avert the self-inflicted wound, but he's doing so at the expense of America's standing in the world. And I find that a little embarrassing. Well, I mean, it's certainly unfortunate. Uh, you know, there's, uh, th- I mean, if you want to look at the Tops, the upside, uh, you know, there were all of these countries that still want to engage in the U.S. You know, Papua New Guinea put the India thing on hold because they wanted to interact with the U.S. The Pacific leaders were looking forward to it. The Quad was looking forward to it. So in 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 one way, it still shows how important it, the U.S. is to the world that if the president doesn't show up for these things, you know, there is there is a vacuum. So that's you know, that's. Uh, good <laughs> you know, we, we, right. you know um, but uh, it would be nice to be able to to capitalize on that a little bit because that vacuum is uh, certainly uh, there's certainly efforts being made to fill it by uh, all sorts of actors who are not only against us uh, but against democracy itself and you know we see it happening in some of the Pacific islands you know the in the Marshall Islands for example which recognizes Taiwan there were two Chinese Marshallese who tried to bribe parliament and set up a basically a self-governing country within a country, um, which would have its own immigration and things like that to completely bypass democracy. It came within one vote of passing, you know, and in Solomon Islands, you see democracy has been delayed uh, through a PRC flush, slush fund that paid off, uh, you know, two thirds of parliament to vote to amend the election. Like it, they're, they're being battered by Chinese influence operations that are affecting their uh, viability as functioning democracies. So I, right. I really hope that that there is a re-engagement in the region uh, very soon that is uh, you know, effective and uh, helpful for the people of the region who are fighting very hard to uh, keep their countries um, free from the sort of corruption, corrupting and corruption that is uh, affecting their daily ways of life. And indeed, and we're, we're being battered by Marjorie Taylor Greene and her ilk, so <laughs> go figure. I thank you for joining us, uh, Cleo Pascal. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And again, I'll be speaking with Cleo Pascal, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, focusing on the Indo-Pacific region and the strategic implications of the intersection of geopolitical, geoeconomic, and geophysical change. She's briefed government departments in the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union, India, and many others. And she's the author of Global Warring, How Environmental, Economic, and Political Crises Will Redraw the World Map. And she testified before Congress yesterday on Chinese influence operations in the Pacific Islands. We can take a brief station break and back looking into how much Rudy Giuliani helped get Trump elected and whether the former president will throw his longtime friend and lawyer under the bus following the explosive recorded evidence in 23,000 private emails that threaten to expose Giuliani's political dealings with Trump and his family.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lloyd Green, an attorney based in New York, who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Department of Justice. He's a contributing writer at The Guardian, where his latest article is The Fall of Rudy Giuliani, Once the Toast of New York Continues Unabated. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lloyd Green. Hello, and good afternoon. Well, thanks for joining us, Lloyd. And the tone of your article suggests that you get no pleasure out of the fall of Rudy Giuliani, that it's sort of sad and and somewhat embarrassing. Have you known him over the years? I've seen him. I've seen him. Remember, he was a Republican mayor. He was elected as a Republican and had friends at the campaign in both 1989 and 1993. Um, And so he was present I was not part of the campaigns, uh, but I was around the campaigns. Right. But now he's facing a $10 million sexual harassment suit for unpaid wages, accused of rape, uh, brought by Noel Dunphy, 43, a former aide in his business development in his law firm. And there's some speculation that She's got some incredibly damaging information. She's got, apparently, according to the 70-page court filing, a lot of what she's uh, charging him with or accusing him of is corroborated uh, by tape, audio, uh, recorded evidence. And it seems that uh, she's also in the possession of 23,000 emails. So do you see her as a threat to Donald Trump? I think at the first instance... She is going to pose a headache for Rudy Giuliani, given the uh, specifics of her allegations, also given the, t- the purported tapes and the purported emails. So at this moment, the, suit, the specifics of the lawsuit are raw. They haven't been fleshed out. That all having been said, the potential areas of interest that go beyond the prurient or go beyond just Rudy Giuliani's own relationship with her is the issue, uh, among other things, strikes me as the pardon issue. There was all that talk of $2 million of pardon. Again, this is her representation. And we'll find out, I'd say fairly quickly, as to what's going on there. But if that in case was the fact, um, that's something that will end up drawing uh, scrutiny. From from Jack Smith, do you think? The special possibly counsel? from possibly from the special counsel's office, possibly from the Democrats in the Senate. But again, this is way too early, and there is going to be a lot of speculation as a result of it. It definitely made headlines. I just think we need to wait and see as to um, whether or not more shoes drop. It's, I think the only way to go about it. It's juicy. It doesn't, if, if you take the complaint at face value, it doesn't say very much for Rudy Giuliani. It doesn't say very much, or it says too much about his slide. But I think we just need to wait and see what comes out in the course of discovery, assuming the case gets to discovery. Well, your article points out stuff that I didn't know, Lloyd, and that Rudy Giuliani's mother was a fan of Mussolini's and that his father spent time for armed robbery in Sing Sing. We know that he was close to Trump. I've seen the video of the of him as mayor performing on stage in drag with Trump. And it's my understanding that when Rudy Giuliani was down and out, he was able to stay at Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump's place down in Florida. But to my mind, it seems to me that what Trump owes Giuliani most of all is the fact that supposedly Giuliani was behind members of the New York FBI field office uh, who pressured Comey to go public over the emails found on Congressman Anthony Weiner's laptop, which Hillary Clinton claims, and of course it happened just before the elections, Hillary Clinton claims that that cost her the presidency. If that is so, then Trump owes him big, does he not? Again, this is that stuff is out there. Do I question? There's a persuasive case to be made that the Comey revelation in the final days of the campaign may well have cost 
in the election. They have cost rather Hillary Clinton the election. Let's just go from there. That having been said, um, what was Rudy's role? I don't. It just becomes way too confusing. Rudy did go ahead and say, "Yeah, I was involved." And then he said, I didn't I knew what was coming. And then it became, no, I don't know what was there. I was just blowing smoke. So that having been said, I'm just a little skeptical at this juncture because who knows what's there. It became a subject of the Mueller investigation. And Rudy just said, yeah, I was just talking. The relationship between Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump now goes back decades. It goes back to the time when Giuliani was mayor. And that is significant by anyone's standard. That is significant. And so once you're at that point, you know what? And there is a type of rapport between the two men. At least there was that kind of rapport. And if that's the case, there's not much you're going to see change at this juncture other than the fact that Donald Trump tends to lose the people who are less usable, less relevant to him over time. That's it. There's also, uh, Lloyd Green, the uh, the role of Charlie McGonigal, the top FBI counterintelligence agent in the New York field office who was recently arrested. And my FBI sources in counterintelligence have said that there's a lot more more shoes to drop in, in the extent to which maybe he was more of a mole for the Russians than we first learned from... Uh, the indictments, and he certainly played a key role in influencing Comey to go public as well as influencing the New York Times to publish that article just ahead of the elections, giving Trump a clean bill of health vis-a-vis his relations with Russia, which, of course, later the Mueller probe completely refuted. Um, Again, I think at this point we're in a wait-and-see mode. There's a lot of reason to speculate. And again, it, it's definitely interesting. It appears to go beyond the prurient. The relationship between Giuliani and Trump, again, is long. Uh, Giuliani wanted to become Trump's secretary of state. That did not happen. Did he have an active role in this administration? Yes. Did he drive Bill Barr batty? It would seem to be the case. I think you're t- definitely touching on a lot of things. It's just, I don't know where any of this stuff goes at this immediate point in time. And as the saying goes with so much of this stuff, this has just been one giant case. Just stay tuned as to what happens next. Because there has just been so much uncertainty, period. There has just been so much uncertainty. So, um yeah, but twenty three thousand emails, Lloyd. That's that's a lot of information. Apparently, they're with and Trump. Of course, doesn't have email, but he he nevertheless communicated apparently often with Rudy Giuliani. And according to the filing from Noel Dunphy, he insisted on her giving him oral sex while Trump was on the speakerphone. We know. The lawyers for Noel Dunphy say that the communications in these 23,000 emails are, are with Mark Meadows and other top Trump officials, along with uh, Trump's own family, Don Jr., Eric, and Ivanka. So 23,000 would indicate to me that there's likely to be something in that that's pretty damning. And I know the prosecutor down in Atlanta was trying to get these emails. So surely that's going to also help her case, is it not? It stands to, but again, I would just say wait and see with all of it. Um, I think you're touching on definite strings that could be pulled as things move ahead. I just don't know where things stand. And after all the speculation that's gone on with every twist and turn in this case, I think everyone will just be better off by just going, by just waiting period. Um, and I know that's not easy because this stuff is, this stuff is interesting by any stretch of the imagination. It is interesting, but it just, it's the type of thing that I would advise caution over. We've had too many, I'd say, false alarms. 
there's too much, there has been too much in the past speculation as to where things go. And frequently it just ends up in a blind alley. And at this juncture, I'd say, let's wait and see, because what can come out actually may be interesting as anything. Well, certainly in the 70-page filing by Noel Dumfries' lawyers, there's a lot of interesting stuff. So what happens, then, <laughs> what happens then if the first thing, of course, will be that Rudy Giuliani will try and have the judge throw it out? What are the chances of that, do you think? It depends. Any, first of all, I'd say anything can happen. There has been no motion made, so it's difficult to assume what will the grounds for dismissal be. You can speculate, but let's see what he puts on paper. And with Rudy, you just never know as to what the basis that he will seek um, for dismissal. And I, I know I'm being cautious here. It's just this is brand new territory. This is a, what's described on, the pa- on paper is a different sort of relationship. It doesn't come across to me as something that I would describe as the healthiest. But I'd also say strange things happen in politics. And so you just go, okay, without getting, I'd say, too worked up over it, but more along the lines of just shaking your head and going, this is the era of Trump, and they have had plenty of strangeness just coming out of all of this. And this just becomes one more instance of another twist and turn, another bit of just head-shaking, and one of those moments where you say, just when you thought you'd heard and seen everything, you end up having this. And my guess is there's, I mean, just this afternoon, there was a story at The Guardian about how there's been a new lawsuit lodged against Giuliani. Giuliani had said someone had slapped him on the back, and it was a strong attack, doesn't have that flavor to it. And so it didn't have that flavor to it. So the uh, person Giuliani had said that about uh, has brought a lawsuit against him. Giuliani likes drama. I mean, let me go back. There was something that was, uh, that happened during the course of the 1993 campaign. 1993, there had been a change in the campaign personnel. The late great, and I don't I say that in all seriousness, David Garth ended up helming the Giuliani campaign. He was the outside media advisor. He he was a legend in New York politics. And he had a self-evaluation performed by the campaign on Rudy's um, past. And it was not a flattering portrait that came out of that exercise. And it took Giuliani aback. He became resentful over the fact that that study had been drawn up. And the sense was he took it out on the person at the campaign who ended up performing the study, mindful of the fact that the study was undertaken at David Garth's request. The statement in the the study had concluded that Giuliani was an odd duck. His first marriage was to his cousin, and that marriage had to be annulled. And he said, I didn't know that she was that close to me in terms of, uh, I think, becomes degrees of consanguinity, and it's like, whatever, it just was. But that was part of the, what for better or for worse, what you could call the Giuliani issue. That's what happened there, going back in time. Um, but that was also out there, and that was also one of those things that just gave pause to what could be coming next. I mean, it just, you just knew it could be not your standard campaign, or your standard mayor. And uh, it wasn't in the end. Less so then, but much more so now. Um, And now we're hearing about it. There's less filter. He's not protected um, the way he was. He's not cosseted the way he was when he was mayor. He's been out there. There He's received a ton of scrutiny. He has escapades which is not necessarily what you want when you're in the middle of public life. It could almost be said there's only one Donald Trump, and Rudy Giuliani is proving it. So, Lloyd, just in, in the last minute then, if Giuliani were able to get this lawsuit thrown out, as you point out, he hasn't filed, but he obviously will contest it. All the evidence, though, the 23,000 emails, the recordings that Noel Dunphy has, 
what will happen to them? Let's step back. If he gets it thrown out, regardless of whether he gets it thrown out, prosecutors can ask for those materials just the way it works. There's no bar to them. They can ask. They're not privileged. You could have a situation where Giuliani says, hey, you know what? You don't have a right to them, but guess what? And so I'm going to try to block that from going to a prosecutor. Now, the chance of him being able to block handing over those tapes to a prosecutor, my sense is, is quite low. Prosecutors can get a ton of stuff. What right he has to those tapes or emails, my sense is, weighs on the low side. So prosecutors can get them regardless of the outcome of the case. Well, I was just going to say, just in closing, do you think, though, that Noel Dumphy could go on The View and play some of the salacious tapes? Anything is possible. <laughs> I mean, this has just been a giant soap opera. I mean, go back in time. Stormy Daniels comes out with a book. How many presidents have porn stars who feature them in their memoirs? Well, welcome to Trump land. I thank you for joining us, uh, Lloyd. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Bye-bye, and thank you. Bye-bye. And again, I've been speaking with Lloyd Green, an attorney based in New York who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Department of Justice. He's a contributing writer at The Guardian, where his latest article is The Fall of Rudy Giuliani, Once the Toast of New York Continues Unabated. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back assessing the promise and pitfalls of AI, which was the subject of Tuesday's hearing before the Senate Subcommittee for Privacy, Technology and Law. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jessica Malugan, who's the director of the Center for Technology and Innovation at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, whose research focuses on technology issues, including antitrust, online privacy, internet taxation, telecommunications, social media content, and net neutrality regulation. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jessica Malugan. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us, Jessica. And yesterday, Tuesday, Sam Altman, the chief executive of the San Francisco startup OpenAI, which is famous for its chatbot chat, GPT, in which Microsoft is a big investor and partner, he testified before the Senate Subcommittee for Privacy, Technology, and the Law and that subcommittee is chaired by Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat of Connecticut. And Blumenthal started out the uh, hearing by playing a AI-generated tape of himself, which was indistinguishable from his own voice, and of course raises the p- real possibility that AI could be abused. And you can imagine what kind of political opposition or opposition research, dirty tricks in politics would be able to use this tool, getting the voice of a politician to say all, all kinds of terrible things and and use against him. I mean, Blumenthal didn't go into it, but the potential for making our already polarized and somewhat ugly politics even worse is, uh, I thought, was the point. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a relatively entertaining way to start a congressional hearing. So I'll give him uh, full credit for that. Those can those can get a little dry. So I like that he's trying to be entertaining. Um, and you know, I mean, I, there's he makes a good point. I, I might differ from him on on what the solution to the the problems he's pointing to are, but certainly this technology, like a lot of technology, brings with it not just benefits and advantages but also challenges and problems. And, um, you know, society will have to adjust and solutions 
there will be solutions that are created to deal with these things. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm with everyone in terms of there's going to be downsides to this too, because that's the world we live in, right? There's, there's trade-offs, there's risks. We all drive around in cars, you know, X amount of people die in car accidents every year. Um, those are the technologies we're used to, right? We accept those risks and we try to minimize those risks and still take advantage of the way they make our lives easier. But when a new technology comes along, I think that there's a lot of incentive for politicians, especially to emphasize the risk part and not spend quite as much time on all the benefits. Um, So I think a little bit of that dynamic was on display at yesterday's hearing. Well, apparently, though, the main witness, Sam Altman, had spent some time meeting with Congress uh, people prior to the hearing. Uh, he'd had lunches. He'd met with a number of senators. It seemed to be, say, compared to when you've had people like uh, Mark Zuckerberg before the Senate, that those hearings were, were much more contentious. It seems like Sam Altman opened himself up and made himself very accessible. And even he brought up questions about his concerns that this is a could be a technology that could be dangerously abused. Yes, that's right. And actually, Senator Durbin, Durbin commented, you know, he can't remember a time when industry has ever sat across from him at a hearing and asked to be regulated. So I'll give you um, my most cynical take on that was that's actually what the leaders of industries do all the time in Washington. It's called regulatory capture. And um, if you're out in front, as Mr. Altman is right now with his product in the lead on, on this new stuff, um, there's a lot of advantages in being at the regulatory table, making the rules alongside with politicians and, and agencies. And you can kind of, you can influence those rules and make sure you protect your product, but you make it a little bit more difficult and erect these barriers to entry for who might be the next up and coming competitor for yourself. So that's my most cynical uh, inside the beltway take for you. And the other is that I, I have no reason to believe that Mr. Allman doesn't have genuine concerns. Um, that's reasonable. And, and again, if you think about how, you know, we, we live in a dynamic world, not a static one. So if you dropped fully realized AI into our society now, Certainly, there would be unresolved questions about copyright, intellectual property, safety, fraud, all these things. But, of course, that's not how it's going to work. As these products get rolled out, there will be reactions. There will be actions, some of which will happen in the private sector. Um, and, and Mr. Altman's cooperation and interest in educating Congress is kind of an, a big indicator of that. IBM had a witness there, too, who... I think industry wants to get this right because it doesn't want to be overregulated or so encumbered that it it's not allowed to progress and, and be beneficial. So some of those solutions will happen in the private sector as reactions to problems as they happen. And some of those might have to be changes to the law, changes to regulations. But the point is you want to be informed and careful and make those surgical adjustments where you're trying to maximize the benefit and minimize the risk. And I think an encouraging thing is that the industry seems very willing to work with Congress. And a discouraging thing is, based on the conversation in the hearing, it's kind of clear that not a lot of members of Congress know anything about artificial intelligence, what it is, what it isn't, um, how to make parallels in their minds about the legal ramifications of it, um, and how to deal with it. So hopefully this is the first step in that process of, of doing this in a smart pro-progress sort of way. Um, But I think certainly it's fair to say that Americans have heard a lot more about the kind of clickbaity, ratings-getting downside potential of AI. And even when you listen to Elon Musk talk about it, who's also involved in this, you know, he doesn't say, oh, for sure, this is going to end the world. He says, there's a non-zero chance that this could be very, very dangerous. Well, I mean, that we should take that seriously. I think that's probably true. But we have a lot of things that we deal with pretty well, fairly well as a society that that pose the same risk. You know, we have nuclear capabilities. We have all these things. And society and governments have built systems around them to keep them relatively safe. I think the point is to not overreact and regulate them out of existence, 
before we have a chance to see all the good that they can do. But, Jessica, already the technology exists uh, with chat, uh, GPT, etc. This conversation I'm having with you, somebody could take this conversation and then they could copy your voice and then have you say the opposite of what you're saying. That's already where we are today, isn't it? Yeah, and I think there are going to be reactions in the marketplace and, and may or may not also be regulatory about verification systems for that, right? Um, so those are the kind of concerns when Photoshop started being a thing, you know, oh, you can trick, you'll be able to make a photograph be anything. And obviously, this is on a much bigger scale, and, and we should take that seriously. But, you know, my money is on human ingenuity, creative forces, lots of incentives for people to get very wealthy getting this stuff right. Uh, over a top-down government solution every time. It doesn't mean the government won't be involved, but it does mean that, you know, I would certainly trust the Elon Musks and Sam Altmans of the world um, for what those specific reactions and solutions are more than I trust, um, you know, members of Congress. So uh, they'll have a role to play, but it's just important to remember the balance of, you know, we want the upside of this technology, too. There's a lot of potential to really improve the quality of life um, in terms of healthcare, in terms of solving big problems. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But in terms of healthcare, the World Health Organization has already uh, warned that the growing experimental use of chat, GPT, and similar tools in medical contexts should be halted until pressing concerns are addressed and clear evidence of benefit is demonstrated. That's according to the United Nations Health World Agency. Health Organization. Yeah, well, I mean, and those are, you know, the groups that are saying things like that are employing something that's called the precautionary principle. And it says, until you can prove that there will be no harm and you know exactly what's going to happen, you're not allowed to go forward with this. Well, the problem with that is nothing would ever improve or go forward. You know, if if we had always thought that way about technology, we would be living in caves. So there has to be a better balance than that. And the other problem with calling for a pause on everyone who's playing by the rules is that there are a lot of people who won't play by the rules. And I don't think we want China getting ahead of AI um, and, and getting there first and sort of setting the parameters. Um, I think there's a way to go forward responsibly, but it, we have to keep going forward. There, there's no pausing. Uh, people who want to use this for nefarious purposes are not going to say, well, I was going to do that, but now that there's a pause, uh, okay, fine, I'll put it down. So, you know, a little bit we have to live in the world as it is, not as we wish it were. Well, you mentioned China, Jessica, and Chris Coons, a senator from Delaware, said the Chinese, in yesterday's hearing, said the Chinese are creating AI that reinforces the core values of the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese system. And I'm concerned about how we promote AI that reinforces and, tra- and strengthens open markets, open societies, and democracy. So are those things possible? Because there was a critic on the panel, Dr. Marcus, a professor and a frequent critic of AI, along with the person that you mentioned as well from IBM, Christina Montgomery. He had some of the toughest questions for, uh, and comments towards uh, Mr. Altman and he expressed doubt, for example, of Sam Altman's predictions that new jobs will replace those killed off by AI. Well, I, you know, and I think the professor said this about himself, so I don't think I'm, um, you know, with, with all due respect for him, I think he is certainly an expert on AI. But he said himself he's not an expert in government regulation, and he's not an expert in economics or the history of economics. So... Um, you know, what he's basically saying is this time is different. And that's sort of what tech critics say every time. You know, the history of technology is that new jobs that you can't foresee and you can't anticipate do get created. It's held every time. They're different jobs. And certainly there is disruption and discomfort with that. The process of creative destruction isn't fun if you're the one whose job is being destructed. Um, But that doesn't mean that we stop the whole the benefit to all of society because we want to freeze things in place. Um, we have to start thinking in a forward way about how do we train people to AI? What will these new jobs be? What skills will people have? 
So I, I respectfully disagree with him on the, the jobs opinion. And also, you know, he said a number of times, well, I don't really know how you would do it to regulate it, but you know, that's not what I'm an expert in. And I think that really highlights this false choice, right? Where the assumption is regulators are omnipotent, um, benevolent, they can see the future and they'll always do the right thing. And that is a false alternative to seeing what happens to AI as we roll it out in, in a responsible and controlled legal way, um, because that kind of regulation just simply doesn't exist. Regulation always comes, like everything else, comes with its own unanticipated consequences and challenges. And we just need to be thoughtful and strategic about how we go forward. So having someone who understands the technical side, like the professor does, is hugely beneficial. But you can tell when it gets to, okay, so then what what should we do about it? He basically said, you know, I don't know. Make it create an agency isn't really an answer, right? So who who is going to be at that agency if if these three prominent experts on it can't give you a specific law you should pass to do something about this? How are we going to fill a new government agency with magical people who apparently don't exist or don't get called to testify to know what to do? I mean, at some point you just have to say we don't know yet. We don't know exactly what the risks will be and what the correct response is. But we will move forward and do that as we go. Um, It is not comforting to people who are risk adverse, but it is the truth about how things grow and progress and move, um, not just in technology, but with all kinds of economic arrangements. So there's already, Jessica, though, questions about Section 230 of the Communications Act that shield Facebook and Google and others from online speech liability. And that's become very controversial, uh, particularly with uh, the Elon Musk, etc. And Senator Lindsey Graham, in fact, asked Sam Altman whether it's the speech liability shield for online platforms like Facebook and Google should also apply to, to AI. And, and of course, he said several times that uh, we need to work together to find a totally new approach. So what did you make of that? Well, I think it's a really interesting question, um, and I, you know, we're very lucky to have the authors of Section 230 still with us and involved, um, and Senator now Senator Wyden and former uh, Congressman Chris Cox have both said on the record that they don't think Section 230 liability protections would or should apply to AI. So, you know, I think that that holds a certain sway, and I think that a lot of people would see it that way. It may be a question that the courts will ultimately have to settle, like they're doing right now at the Supreme Court under the Gonzalez versus Google case about algorithmic recommendations and whether those are covered by Section 230, which I would say probably are, where I would be a little more skeptical that AI would. Um, You know, maybe that question will be answered in the courts, or maybe Congress will act before to do something new and different um, specifically aimed at AI. You know, the people sitting in that room asking the questions were the, are the people empowered to take that action? Congress has a lot of trouble getting anything passed these days, but they theoretically they could do that and they could take it in any direction they want. If there's things they're unhappy about, about how the liability on Section 230 has played out, this is certainly their opportunity to take things in the next direction. And again, that would also involve a whole bunch of education of lawmakers about AI and how it might work. Um, so, they, you know, they certainly have every option and constitutional right to do that. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time, Jessica, but I thank you very much for joining us here today. It was so enjoyable to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Jessica Malugan, who's director of the Center for Technology and Innovation at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, whose research focuses on technology issues, including antitrust, online privacy, internet taxation, telecommunications, social media content, and net neutrality regulations. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half